listening to This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes. Not necessarily in that order. This is episode 6 for May 30th, 2016. An opinion upon the subject. That will do, Mr. Wilson. I shall be happy to give you an opinion upon the subject in the course of a day or two. Today is Saturday, and I hope that by Monday we may come to a conclusion. Well, Watson, said Holmes when our visitor had left us, what do you make of it all? I make nothing of it, I answered frankly. It is a most mysterious business. As a rule, said Holmes, the more bizarre a thing is, the less mysterious it proves to be. It is your commonplace, featureless crimes which are really puzzling— just as a commonplace face is the most difficult to identify. There is certainly no shortage of opinions in the Sherlockian world these days, is there? That was a bit of dialogue from The Red-Headed League, one of my favorite canonical stories. Welcome to This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes, though not necessarily in that order. I'm your host, Beth. Show notes can be found at thistangledskein.com, and you can get in touch with me at comments at thistangledskein.com. I'm also on most forms of social media, including Twitter, Instagram, Ravelry, Litzy, so on and so forth, as Plexippa. That's P as in Porlock, L-E-X-I-P-P-A. Today's tea is the D for Detective blend by Midwinter from Adagio. The official description. You know you want it. Cream and nuts and chocolate all coming together for a taste of bliss. Energetic mocha nut mate, woody hazelnut and luscious cream teas commingle with cocoa and chocolate to create a robust blend that'll get you up in a jiffy, rip-roaring and ready to plow through any obstacle in your path. If you've ever hoped a tea would go deeper and do more, this is the blend for you. Really, how could I top that description? I'll just add that I can definitely taste the hazelnut, though not as much chocolate as I would have expected, and it's perfect with one teaspoon of sugar in my two-cup mug. It also includes marigold petals, which weren't in that description. The directions on the sample container say to steep at 212 Fahrenheit for three minutes, but the Adagio site recommends 190 degrees. I've tried both, and I definitely prefer it at the lower temperature. As with all the mate teas, Adagio notes that it contains a high level of caffeine. Just what I need in the mornings as we head into summer reading season at the library. This was one of the teas in my leap day order from Adagio. I probably ought to actually break open that bag of Brigadoon breakfast one of these days. This month, I started and finished the Waveland Shawlette from Sock Yarn Shawls 2 by Jen Lucas. I knit it out of the Blue Moon Fiber Arts Cloud 9 in the colorway It's a Collection, Not an Obsession. Cloud 9 is a merino nylon cashmere blend, and it's so soft. It was one of those skeins that I bought at Eat Sleep Knit while I was in Atlanta for 221BCon. This might actually be a record for time from skein to finished object for yarn bought without a purpose in mind. Somebody remind me to bring it to con next year, okay? While I was at the con, I also got a phone call from my youngest sister telling me that she and her husband are expecting a baby in October. Since they got married about a year and a half ago, I've been thinking about baby knits, just in case. 
I've had the Peapod baby set pattern for years, and since my sister and her husband live on a farm, it seemed really perfect. I had some Cascade 128 Superwash in the stash, specifically set aside, along with some buttons for the sweater. But when I sat down to wind the first hank into a ball to start knitting, I kept running into broken strands and weak spots. By the time the same thing happened with the third hank, I had to admit that it wasn't just a bad skein. Something had obviously happened to damage the yarn, and I have a terrible suspicion that it was something small whose name is a four-letter word beginning with M and ending in off. I couldn't find any actual insect evidence, no bugs, no larvae, no chrysalis remains, but the damage is suspicious. I'm very glad the yarn was in a separate bag, which I promptly tossed. Unfortunately, I don't have anything else on hand that will work for the Peapod baby set, so that's on hold for a while. Instead, I took a ball of Knit One Crochet Two tie-dye socks that I had put in the up-for-sale-or-trade bin and cast on a Flax Light sweater from Tin Can Knits in the 6-9 to nine month size. Flax Light is the fingering weight version of the Flax sweater, a very simple raglan pullover that's part of Tin Can Knits' Learn to Knit series. The tie-dye socks yarn is a self-striping yarn with very long, somewhat irregular color repeats, which are even less regular when knit over more stitches and at a looser gauge than usually used for socks. This is the creatively named colorway 1518. The stripes are shades of green and sometimes beige. So far I've knit the body of the sweater and started on the first sleeve. It's going to be a very lightweight sweater. I think it'll be good for layering over a onesie. For the three days before the baby outgrows it, of course. I've also been working on the plain vanilla socks in Knitpix Felici Time Traveler that I started at 221Bcon, though they've mostly been on hold in favor of the baby sweater. Both projects are excellent TV knitting, so it's kind of a shame that just about everything has had its season finale and gone on summer hiatus. I've been catching up on back episodes of a video podcast called 10,000 Stitches, which I recommend if you are into sock knitting, and doubly so if you are into sock knitting and the life of a college instructor. Andy is a physics instructor at a university in Virginia, where she moved fairly recently with her partner, and she's set herself a goal of knitting 50 pairs of socks in 2016. Once I catch up to the current episode, I may join in her ongoing knit-along. I'm going to be stepping up my knitting and spinning game over the next few months. July is the Tour de Fleece. I participated last year and really enjoyed it, and since I've done barely any spinning lately, I'd like to get back in practice. And then, in August, we have the competition formerly known as the Ravalympics, the Ravalenic Games. I'll put a link in the show notes to an article about exactly why it's not called the Ravalympics anymore, for anyone who is still curious. I'm going to be double-dipping for both of those with the next Nerdopolis tournament. I participated in Nerd Wars for a few tournaments before its format shifted. Nerdopolis is the competition that grew out of Nerd Wars. That's right, you non-yarny folks, competitive fibercrafting. I signed on with Team 221B for the next three-month go-round, which will start on June 1st. So, more to come about deadline knitting and dodgy thematic tie-ins to come in the next few episodes. The way Nerdopolis works is this. Players join teams that focus on a particular nerdy topic. Well, mostly. There are also independent players known as rogues. Since I'm not one of them, I'm just going to skip over that. My team is, of course, 221B. The official team description goes like this. Here at Team 221B, we celebrate the adventures of the world's only consulting detective, Sherlock Holmes. He was created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and first appeared in the novel A Study in Scarlet in 1887. 
Doyle went on to write three more novels and 56 short stories about him. These stories have captured the imagination of the world. He is the most filmed character ever and has inspired dozens of authors to write their own stories about him. We cover the original stories by Arthur Conan Doyle in all TV, movie, and stage adaptations, as well as the various pastiches starring Holmes and Watson such as The 7% Solution and Basil of Baker Street. In addition, we cover stories inspired by the original canon, such as the Brothers of Baker Street series and the Mary Russell series. That description is important, because any projects made for the tournament have to somehow tie in to both a particular event, six are posted each month of the tournament, and to the team's theme. Some of the projects I did for Nerd Wars in tournaments past were a stuffed Loch Ness monster that satisfied the challenge theme of cryptozoology and the team tie-in with the film The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes a stuffed T-Rex that met the challenge theme of I Dig Geology and the team tie-in with the Asylum film Sherlock Holmes, also known as Sherlock Holmes and Dinosaurs, and a lace shawlette in a bright red-orange for an unfinished objects challenge, since I started it and didn't finish it for a previous round, that got the team tie-in of Sherlock's shock blanket in a study in pink and is known as the shock blanket shawlette. I wore it to a tea party with the SoCal Sherlockians and the curious collectors of Baker Street once. Looking over my projects, I did knit a lot of stuffies for Nerd Wars. My favorite might be Jacques Lobster. The actual pattern name is Jacques Cousteau, and it's one of the few projects that have an actual canon tie-in, a quote from the Red-Headed League. He is as brave as a bulldog and as tenacious as a lobster if he gets his claws upon anyone. That would be Sherlock Holmes referring to Scotland Yard's Peter Jones. Maybe I should try to branch out a bit in the upcoming tournament. I will certainly have some new material to work with. I started reading F.C. Shaw's Sherlock Academy. It's a middle-grade novel set in 1931. Rollin E. Wilson and his best friend, Cecily Bright, have been selected to attend the Sherlock Academy of Fine Sleuths, a very exclusive boarding school in London, where they will be trained in all the subjects great detectives need to know, like cryptography, fingerprinting, and disguise. There is an unfortunate anachronism in the very beginning of the book, when Raleigh recalls arguing with his brother that Sherlock Holmes is, quote, smarter than Superman. I don't know a lot about comics, but I was pretty sure 1931 was too early for a kid to be referencing Superman, and it was, by a good seven years, possibly longer, given that Raleigh is in England, and I have no idea when Superman first appeared in the UK, and a quick Google search got me nowhere. Comics experts, let me know. Did Action Comics make it to the UK at the same time as the US? That quibble aside, I'm about halfway through the book and enjoying the characters quite a lot. It's different from the Amanda Lester series. Besides the historical setting, the whole book feels aimed at a slightly younger audience. Once I've finished the book, I'll be able to compare and contrast a bit more. Speaking of books for younger audiences, I got a package in the post I've been looking forward to for months and wishing for before that. It's the reprint hardcover edition of Basil of Baker Street by Eve Titus. It's reissued complete with Paul Galdone's illustrations, but they did a little rebranding on the cover. At the center top is a silhouette of Basil and Dawson from the Disney film, just above the very large block print words, The Great Mouse Detective. Underneath that, it says Basil of Baker Street in smaller script. That's okay. I'm still thoroughly enjoying my visit to Homestead. On a completely different note, just today I got copies of Watson and Holmes Volume 1, A Study in Black, and Watson and Holmes Volume 2. I was one of the Kickstarter backers for Volume 2, and it's been a long time coming. The books are set in modern-day Harlem. Watson is, of course, an Afghanistan war vet, but also an emergency room doctor, and Holmes is a private investigator. Oh, 
Did I mention they're African American? And that Watson is at the forefront, as reflected in the title? Volume 2 is a collection of stories written by several authors, including Lindsay Fay, for whom I am an enormous fangirl. The back of the book blurb says she interprets the solitary cyclist, as well as bringing in Irene Adler. I can hardly wait. With so many excellent books lined up, maybe that TV show Summer Hiatus is a good thing after all. I am planning to do a lot of reading anyway, since Memorial Day marks the beginning of Books on the Nightstand book bingo. Even though Michael and Anne have put their podcast on hiatus, and I suppose they've earned a break after eight years, even though I'll be sad not to have a new episode every week, the community lives on on the internet, and book bingo is back for another year. My card includes some interesting spaces. Published in 1916, and published over 100 years ago are both on there, along with historical fiction and alternate history. I also got with a punctuation mark in the title, which reminds me that Who Killed Sherlock Holmes just came out and would fill that slot rather nicely, because I obviously wouldn't be able to find anything else in the 800 books on my Goodreads TBR, right? In the mail this month, I received the new Watson Society publications. I've been talking about these for months, I know, because I've been so excited about them. This is the first round of publications to go out since I stepped into the role of Boy and Buttons in addition to Webmistress, and there was quite a bit of coordinating to be done between me, the editor, the designer, the society treasurer, the printer, and so on. The Spring Watsonian included my first article in Ever Polishing the Brass Plate, which was largely made up of the blog entry I posted on the site about how I became a Watsonian to begin with. What I love and have always loved about the Watson Society is its commitment to inclusiveness. Don Leiby, the founder and original Boy and Buttons, had a wonderful way of making everyone feel welcome, no matter how you found your way there. He brought up all sorts of discussion topics from who was Mrs. Turner anyway, which eventually became an article in the Watsonian, to what do we know about footwear in the canon, to what trees are named in the canon. I'm honestly not sure quite where we were going with that tree thing, but I have a spreadsheet of all the trees I found named. He brought the monograph series and the fiction series into being and plans for the third volume of the fiction series, Eleanor Gray and Basil Chap's The Doctor and the Duelist, were well underway when he unexpectedly passed just over a year ago now. My goal is to keep the Watson Society going as an open, inclusive community of fans of Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes, a place where we can discuss all kinds of ideas. Observing the reaction to the spring publications has been interesting. In addition to the spring Watsonian, all members received a copy of The Doctor and the Duelist. Additionally, a number of non-members purchased copies of the book before printing. The initial responses I saw on Twitter were positive. That wasn't surprising. Eleanor is a great writer, and Basil is a great artist, and the two of them together produced a lovely work. It did, though, have a significant difference from earlier books in the fiction series, aside from those fabulous illustrations. Folks, if you haven't yet read it and you want to read it without spoilers, now's the time to pause this podcast and go read it. Okay, still here? Or you've come back? Good. The story centers on one of the untold cases referenced in the problem of Thor Bridge, that of, quote, Isadora Persano, the well-known journalist and duelist, who was found stark staring mad with a matchbox in front of him, which contained a remarkable worm said to be unknown to science. We learn about the worm, and about Persano, who has a mysterious past that he's been hiding from everyone, including his wife. At the end, in a sort of coda to the story, there is a scene in which Watson confesses his romantic feelings for Holmes, 
and the two have their first kiss. The very last page of the book is a full-page cartoon illustration of that kiss. I know that not everyone is going to be thrilled with that ending, and it's okay. It's okay not to like something. Everyone has their own preferences. There are certainly pastiches out there that I don't like. And really, if you take issue with the general idea of bringing Holmes's love life into things, well, I'd suggest you avoid a whole lot of stuff, beginning with that Gillette film from 1916. (sighs) Kidding aside, I do want to say that it really is okay to like some things and not other things. It seems like some folks need reminding that we can hold different opinions and discuss them with grace and good humor. However you play the game, come and play it with me. That's all I have for this month. So until next time, I bid you goodbye. You've been listening to This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about Yarn, Tea, and Sherlock Holmes, not necessarily in that order. Show notes can be found at thistangledskein.com, and you can reach me by email at comments at thistangledskein.com. I can be found on most forms of social media, including Twitter, Instagram, and Ravelry, as Plexipa. That's P as in Porlock, L-E-X-I-P-P-A. Reviews or star ratings on iTunes are always appreciated. 